Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm glad to be with you again here in this satsang evening. <clears throat> it is the last satsang before the two Easter days, the Western Roman Catholic Easter and the Eastern Greek Orthodox or whatever, Orthodox Easter. And um, next week I will not have a satsang because I'm caught into a workshop. I'm teaching a workshop. And therefore, I thought that tonight I want to share with you some ideas about the Easter. Also to uh, bring back to you some of the fundamental coordinates. Because um, we always talk about the fact that our Easter day meditation, this week it will be Sunday at 12 o'clock, Sunday at noon here, Thai time. It is a meditation which is about the Christ sphere of consciousness, the Christ-like sphere of consciousness, as Paramahamsa Yogananda has called it. And um, every year I had to resume and to say again, what is this Christ-like consciousness? What are we actually meditating upon? And all that. Well, uh, last year I made a satsang on this and it is uploaded. I verified that it exists online. And therefore, I would recommend that all those of you who don't know what, what we as yogis find, what do we extract from Easter... Because ultimately you can say this is just a Christian religious anniversation and what does it mean for tantric yogis in a school like Agama. Precisely to understand such a matter, I recommend that you see, and if you forgot that I recommend that you see it again, this uh, satsang, because uh, it was done exactly on purpose that every year I will not have to say the same things, the same things. Not because it's boring, but because there are many other precious and important things to reveal about the spiritual realities. And uh, thus we would avoid uh, running in circles into some matters. Also, when it comes to the Orthodox Easter, which is next week, the Roman Catholic and Protestant Easter is... Uh, this Sunday on the 17th of April, but the Orthodox Easter is on the 24th of April, a week later. This creates uh, confusion in some people because they want to put their heart in one celebration and they kind of get disturbed that other people celebrate at a different date and then for them it's like, ah, that one is fake, is not true. Um, the fact that people got confused about the dates for a variety of reasons which are not worth explaining here, it doesn't mean that they are fake because if people want to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, which the Easter is, then they are very welcome to do it. Even if the date is wrong, there is no right or wrong from this standpoint with Jesus and praying with devotion to Jesus at a given date, 
will yield the right result, even if the date would scientifically be considered wrong. Here in Agama, we being more or less an international community, made of people who are Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, and of many other denominations, then um, we celebrate both the dates of Easter. And uh, thus, we are going to have an Easter night, which again, we don't celebrate formally, here Saturday evening, this coming Saturday, and then Sunday at midday, at noon, we have our Easter meditation, which is an Easter meditation consecrated to the glory of the Easter day, to the glory of Jesus, because ultimately the Easter is a great, great spiritual victory. If you want to define it very briefly, it's like Jesus was subjected to an, a terrible, indescribable test, and he passed it successfully, and because he passed it successfully, he was given all the power, all the responsibility for this period of human history. Not that he didn't have power or things before, but it is like an anointment, and that anointment is called exactly Christ. Jesus is the given name of Jesus, and Christ is a title. It's Jesus the Christ. So, the Christ is an anointment, like Jesus deserved to become the Christ, and today, after passing this terrible test 2,000 years ago, today he is the Christ. So, this Christ was illustrated by the yogis under what Yogananda first rationally called the Christ-like sphere of consciousness, and it means a consciousness in which one can sacrifice for their fellow man. Generally, while Buddha taught compassion, he never taught, except in the much, much later Tibetan Buddhism and some of the Mahayana teachings from the 5th, 6th century AD, so long after Christ, Buddha never taught that you have to go in the forest and practice vipassana for other people. Buddha never taught that if you become enlightened, it will be somehow organically beneficial to other people, like you are dealing somehow with their karma or with their levels of ignorance and knowledge or other such things. Uh, he claimed that it is good that on a planet a Buddha is born. This will give inspiration to the next generations because a Buddha will make the message clear and is a model to be followed. But this organic thing which Jesus brought, that one can stand for many and one can grace, give grace to many, is specifically to the message of the Christ. So the Christ-like consciousness uh, means a proactive enlightened consciousness, which in the Mahayana Buddhism was defined as the bodhisattva attitude, not only that you are uh, seeking for the Buddha state, 
but also you think that when you will get it, when you will become a Buddha, it will not be only for yourself, but it will incur a certain amount of self-sacrifice, such as stay here, don't just let your body die and go, don't, you know, and sacrifice for the others. So it includes very much the concept of compassion, which in the message of Jesus was expressed more under the term of love, the unconditional love, the divine love. So we make such a meditation of anniversary on this Sunday, celebrating the spiritual victory. The spiritual victory is confirmed by the very controversial phenomenon of resurrection of Christ. Both the Jewish culture and the Islamic culture, they do not officially accept the resurrection of Christ. The Jews say that the disciples stole the body from the grave and they must have buried it somewhere else and therefore it's a fake, it's just a propaganda, it's just ideological warfare. And the Muslims say that he was in a coma, in a clinical death, and he was revived a bit later, and then he was kept in a private house by some of his disciples, sympathizers, followers, and then one month later he was sent to Srinagar in Kashmir, and that's where he lived the rest of his life. And therefore, both of them would prefer to tell a wild story rather than admit that he was resurrected. Because if he was resurrected, that's a slap on the face. Because it says nobody else among the prophets before or after was resurrected, and this resurrection was an intervention from God, and God hates to interfere in the manifestation, because he has to show his face, he has to show his power, and God tries to hide behind the curtains so that people will never realize up till a certain level of consciousness that there exists a divine omnipresent consciousness. And because of that, God avoids at all cost. But in the case of Jesus, the ping pong between Jesus and God escalated to the point where the last move of Jesus, which was like a check in the game of chess, the check was that Jesus surrendered and allowed himself to be crucified, assassinated, tortured, and everything else for the sake of people that he didn't even know, for the sake of people who did not acknowledge him, for the sake of people who didn't like him, for the sake of humanity at large. And uh, this check prompted an obligatory response from God. Like God could not stay in check. God had to make his move, and his move has been enough is enough. Jesus has passed the limit of endurance. Now I will show you that he was right. And the resurrection is a slap in the face of those who did not believe in Jesus, showing this man that you have mocked, tortured, ignored, whatever, 
was actually from me. And here is the demonstration. I bring him back to life. So the, even this resurrection, as you probably know, was subjected to the wall of silence. So that until today, people cannot give an absolutely convincing proof of the resurrection of Christ. And even all the collateral proofs like this cloth from Turin, in Torino, in Italy, or wherever, and other such uh, paraphernalia and relics, they are controversial. Many people say they don't prove anything, and the list could continue. And therefore, in the end, people did not realize. Remember that his own disciple, called Thomas, he could not believe it when he saw him back. And he said, if you are truly the same Jesus, because you, you look like you are his twin brother, you are a lookalike, you are a replacement, you are a decoy, you are, you know, it's like if you are really that Jesus, you must have some marks from the crucifixion in your arms and in your legs. And, and you know, like, show me the marks, you know, it's like if Thomas, who had been with him for years, and who saw Jesus resurrecting at least two people, because he was there when he resurrected the daughter of Jairus, and he was there when Jesus resurrected Lazarus. We don't know about the third, or if it was, we don't have the timeline very clear about those. If Thomas, who saw Jesus raising at least two dead people from death, could not believe that this was Jesus resurrected, because everybody said, come on man, when you are dead, you are dead. You're gone and that's the end of it. Then, what to claim, what to ask from the others. What to ask from the rest of mankind. Jesus told to Thomas clearly, Thomas, lucky are you because you have seen my scars and you believed. But more lucky are those who haven't seen me and my scars and still believe in it. In the end... Jesus is asking from people to take a positive, proactive decision and to choose to believe in his resurrection, not because he did it, but because God did it for him. As a proof, this is indeed my beloved son and his message was right all along and therefore you should believe in what this man has brought to humanity, to mankind. <clears throat> and therefore, um, there is a wall of silence even there, like God poked his finger and resurrected Jesus, but he did it in a minimalistic way. There were a number of people who saw it, and even they couldn't really believe it. And then, there were a lot of people who needed some extra proofs, and there are still today on earth a number of people who believe it may have happened and that they are ready to believe in it. That's why this is a difficult event because the event of resurrection places Jesus above anyone else. I said it many times. There are myths of resurrection, like Osiris was cut into pieces and then Isis danced with his dead body and stuck him together with her saliva or with the water of life or whatever. And, but this is a myth. 
is that it does not refer to a concrete human DNA person who lived on earth between this year and this year and who was dead and came back to life and all that. There are many myths of resurrection, but there is no historical fact of resurrection, exception made of people who are in clinical death and who are mistakenly considered dead. And then they came back to life three days later or eight days later or God knows what, you know. But that's not a resurrection because they were not dead to start with. In the case of Jesus, it is claimed very clearly that this most radical event happened and it is taken to be the ultimate divine proof. More than that, you just have to ask God to manifest right in front of your eyes and slap you in the face. You know, it's like if you want to prove more concrete than that, then God has to reveal himself. On this planet, exception made perhaps in Satya Yuga, God does not reveal himself. It is the law, it is the dharma of this planet, that this planet is still a place of ignorance, maybe not the lowest place in this universe, maybe not the worst place in this universe, but still a place of ignorance and pain to a large extent, as we can see every day looking around ourselves and looking at people's lives. Because of this, as Buddha said, our suffering is caused by our ignorance. And ignorance is a matter of not knowing, of karma, and that's why it is the karma of this planet that 99% of the people do not know. Even the people who believe that Jesus resurrected, they don't know for sure. It's an intuition. At the best, they have a faith based on some intuition in their hearts. And they say, I don't know, I haven't seen, but I believe. Glory to them, wonderful intuition that they choose to believe or they believe spontaneously, even without choosing in this. But this still does not take away the karma of ignorance. That's why there are people who saw Jesus in light, shining in that light of resurrection, and then they know for sure that he exists. Paramahamsa Yogananda, who often talks about Jesus, he says that he saw Jesus several times in his life, in his meditations, in his mystical experiences, and so did Ramakrishna say that he met with Jesus face to face, personally, so did Sundar Singh, so did so many other Christian mystics, and that's why uh, I'm telling you all this to say that for some people this doubt is removed. But until you have reached that threshold level, everybody lives in this doubt. It's the karma, it's the dharma of this planet that until you gain a certain level of consciousness, there exists a wall of silence which hides the things from the regular person. And God himself has instituted this wall of silence and doesn't want it broken. And thus... The resurrection is 
the most radical event, and it is, remember, not a miracle done by Jesus. Jesus did not resurrect himself. Jesus surrendered and told to God, now it's your move. And so God was morally obliged to do this because it was the game, the extraordinary game, which they were playing and God could not let this pass in this way. And of course, for Jesus, he has done resurrections before to show that it's part of what God does and that's why it is so controversial. We also mention the fact that this sacrifice is a form of ritual sacrifice. It imitates the sacrifice of the lamb, which the ancient Jews brought to God, to the temple, and that lamb was supposed to cleanse their sins, to cleanse their karma. And now instead of a lamb, you have a human lamb, who is much bigger, and he cleanses the sins not of one person, but of all those who wish to accept that. Of course, you all know the story that Jesus did not take away cancer and tuberculosis, and this, they still happened a lot in the last 2,000 years after Jesus came. So Jesus did not come to take away family problems. He did not come to take away social issues. He did not come to take away violence among people. Jesus came to take away a certain form of ignorance. As evolved philosophically as the ancient Vedic Hindus were, or as the Greek philosophers were 300 years before Jesus at the times of Socrates and Plato and Pythagoras and the rest of them, still they were not seeing higher than the gods. The human gaze was limited that the universe is like a pyramid but without a top. A pyramid which is cut and there is a level where there are the gods. But the fact that above the gods there is a god of the gods, this they couldn't see. And this came first to the Jewish mystics thousands of years ago. And then it slowly spread in humanity. Nobody knows, for example, when this monotheistic view came to the Vedas, to the Vedic and Vedantic tradition. We see that starting with certain centuries, it was there. But it's like they picked it up from the thin air. There was not one prophet who says, Okay, India, listen to me. Now we stop the polytheism, the Hindu polytheism, and we move to uh, monotheism because that's the future, that's the modern, that's the transcendental thing. It doesn't exist while in, uh, with the prophets, Abraham and the rest of them, going to Moses and so on. This exists very clearly in the Jewish tradition. So, uh, I'm telling you all these to make you understand that um, this sacrifice of Jesus made it possible that this monotheistic view spread in the Greek, Byzantine, Eastern Byzantine Empire, in the Roman, Western Roman Empire, and all over the world. Then it got exported to North America, South America, Asia, everywhere, 
No? And it became possible just because of one man took this burden of giving this view, giving this... So, again, this, was, this is a karmic sacrifice, and that's why Jesus had to pay it with blood, with life, with surrender, with pain, because every sacrifice has to be a sacrifice actually, and uh, it had different dimensions. For Jesus, it was not so much the sacrifice as much as it was the trust, the faith, the surrender, because he already had that state of consciousness. So, um, of course, for us yogis, as Yogananda very often said, um, this is more an opportunity for aspiration. We are, at least I am not conscious that you are, uh, we are not preparing to be the next Jesus Christ. Because I don't know how many of you would have the stamina and the faith to die for the spiritual well-being of humanity. If you do, you are more advanced than I am, That means I, as a spiritual teacher, I am prepared to sacrifice a lot of things in my life for the fact that some people around me will open their crown chakra and will have high states of consciousness. But if I would be asked today to climb on a cross and be crucified in a painful way, honest to God, I don't know if I would have the willpower, the faith, the resistance... I would not like to be subjected to such a test because I might simply break under the weight of such a test. That's why um, I am humbly carrying my dharma and my uh, work here, but uh, what Jesus did is pretty unique. And that's why we in yoga, we don't say uh, you become 100% like Jesus. But we know that Jesus gives us aspiration. That Jesus is a spiritual model. We meditate. We do samyama. Identification. We do the spiritual practice to try to be as close as possible to Jesus and to benefit from his grace, from his blessing, from the karmic sacrifice which he made for us. That's why, of course, we do celebrate Easter, because it touches each and every one of us, but we celebrate it in the yogic way. So this Sunday at 12 o'clock we have the first meditation, the Christ-like sphere of consciousness, trying to understand how somebody can have such a love and such a compassion, and such a sense of oneness, and such a sense of surrender, and such a sense of abnegation that one would be able to do this sacrifice. And then next week we do it again, on the 24th, next Sunday, at 12 o'clock again, because it's the other Easter, and we don't want to discriminate between them. We do both of them. That Orthodox Easter has a peculiarity 
because something is happening at uh, between 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock Jerusalem time. That's the strange miracle, which is called the Holy Fire Ceremony. And we meditate on that because it's interesting. Next week, make yourself time to look for this one. Right now, I've seen it on the Agama 2 or YouTube channel. It's simply called Easter for a bizarre reason. Um, it should be called, of course, the Easter Holy Fire Ceremony. That's where I explain what this is, so I don't have to do it again every year before that meditation, quickly, quickly, in a rush, and all that. You can see videos on YouTube, see exactly what's going to happen in 10 days from now in Jerusalem at approximately 1 p.m. Uh, on Saturday, the Saturday before the Easter Orthodox Sunday. And then, as you may remember, here in Agama, we are so greedy for Easter's that we celebrate the number three Easter as well, which is supposed to be the Easter of Shambhala, the Shambhala Easter, because it is said by initiates that the people from Shambhala do a lot of prayer, meditation, spiritual work on Easter, probably on both of them, and then they don't celebrate. And they celebrate the Easter by convenience, by convention, they celebrate it one week later because that's when they can take it more easy with their spiritual efforts. And thus, there are three Easter's. This year they come three weeks in a row. Catholic Easter, Orthodox Easter, Shambhala Easter. And on all of them, on Sunday at 12 o'clock, we celebrate with a meditation. Now... To go further, now because I told you what's happening and uh, there is a satsang about the Shambhala Easter as well. So they are all of them made for this Easter, for the Holy Light Ceremony and for the Shambhala Easter. Those of you who have not seen or heard such a satsang, please go and do. So you come prepared, motivated, primed for the meditations. What I'm going to do now, I'm going to do a thing which I do on this 12 o'clock meditation as well, but without having the time to give too much explanations. It is traditional from one of the great saints of Christianity called St. John Chrysostomus. Chrysostomus is the English pronunciation of a Greek word or expression, which I do not dare pronounce because I don't know if my pronunciation in Greek is correct, but Chrysostomus in Greek, in, in the Greek original, it means with a golden mouth, having a mouth made of gold. A mouth made of gold. That's because John Chrysostomus had not only a wonderful connection to God, but he also probably had an amazing Vishuddha chakra and maybe even a great Muladhara chakra, the resonance with Sarasvati, the goddess of speech, because he managed to pour out, exactly as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was pouring out music almost perfectly and spontaneously, this John Chrysostomus was pouring out the words of God almost perfectly, fluidly, in a form which was almost flawless, and then even the great mystics who heard his prayers and rituals 
and formulas, they got amazed and they said, man, this man must have a golden mouth. This man is blessed by God. His mouth is made of gold. How can a man produce so eloquently, so poetically, and at the same time so clearly, so unequivocally, some the divine truths? Saint John Chrysostomus is the one who created, for example, the text of the Christian Mass. Since, since the 3rd century, the Christians recite the same Mass on Sunday. Very few people know that that Mass is Saint John Chrysostomus' production, and it is unaltered. It is not changed until today. Exception made that the Catholic Church in the 1960s took a very weird decision, and because the normal Mass takes one hour and 45 minutes, two hours, they thought that the Catholic people are too busy with their industrial concerns, and because of this the Mass is too long, and they created the Vatican Mass, a shortened form which takes 45 minutes, so that the Christians would not stay too much in church. It brings smiles to people's lips, to spiritual people's lips, like why not? They should have made a double as long Mass, so that people should spend four hours in church instead of two. But it's the convenience of modern times, the compromise of modern times, and then when you go to a Catholic church today and you have a 45 minutes Mass, that only excerpts from St. John Chrysostomus Mass. It's not the complete text. There is one which is longer and which takes almost three hours, two hours and a half, and which is created by another great saint of Christianity, St. Basil the Great. St. Basil the Great also composed the text of the Mass, more rich, longer, but that one is celebrated in Christian churches only one day per year, which is usually the 1st of January, which is the day of St. Basil. So on the St. Basil Day, they would celebrate in monasteries the St. Basil Mass. What I was trying to say is that this St. John Chrysostomus had an amazing gift. An amazing gift. He is like the people who wrote the Bible. He is like the people who wrote the Vedas or the Upanishads. He is a sort of a genius of the word. And this St. John Chrysostomus, he simply said, if you don't know what to say to people, on the Easter day, here, I will make a one-page text for you. Say this. This is a reduced excerpt of what to say on Easter. And therefore, there is a sort of a prayer. It's actually not called prayer. It's called the homily. It's like an ode. It's like a praise to Jesus and to his resurrection made specially for the Easter day. And I'm reading it on the Easter day because it has a great power in it and it brings a blessing with it. It starts with the first half of the message is a message of rejoice. It is, for example, forbidden in the Christian churches that one should kneel on Easter day and one week after. Although it is recommended that people should be humble, in that week, 
one week after Easter, you are not allowed to kneel because Jesus has resurrected and that is glory to God. And when you celebrate the glory of God, you don't kneel. There, you stand up because Jesus has earned for you this right to stand up. Then, in the rest of the year, you practice your humbleness. You pray. Even if you want to pray, you don't pray on your knees. You pray standing because of the resurrection. So, here, John Chrysostomus brings us this message of rejoice. It's a day of victory. You are going to say that he speaks about the fact that people in the 40 days before Easter, they were making spiritual effort. They were going into the land, which means they were going completely vegan. Some people, at least in the last week before Easter, they go completely vegan um, as a sign of asceticism. They were doing more prayer. Some people refrained from sex. That was, of course, in the environment where sex was not a sacred manifestation like it tries to be done in Tantra. So, um, it was a spiritual effort. And says John Chrysostomus, I'm, I read it because I want to explain parts of it. Are there any who are devout lovers of God? He calls on people, you know, like stand up, you know, be... Uh, are there any among you who are devout lovers of God? then let them enjoy this beautiful and radiant celebration. No, he says, if you don't enjoy, you must be a, a demon which got beaten on that day. Any spiritual person who loves God will stand up and will say, wow, what a miracle has happened today that Jesus succeeded and God had to play his hand, had to reveal his power in this amazing game of grace and give grace to humanity. Are there any who are grateful, wise servants? This is an allusion to the parable of Jesus, that Jesus often made parables in which some servants of God, they were wise and they were fulfilling exactly what their master told them, and some were negligent and stupid, and they were not fulfilling what the master told them, and they always got punished. There are various parables. So here, John is asking you, are there among you any who are grateful, wise servants? Like, forget about the crazy, stupid servants who fucked up. But are there among you any who are grateful? Like, this is the day of victory. And if you are a wise servant, then here is the day. Then let them, let them, rejoicing, enter into the joy of their Lord. This is so beautiful, because the joy of your Lord is samadhi. The joy of your Lord is ananda. The joy of your Lord is the bliss, the beatitude. So he says clearly today, it's a day when God is spreading this joy Exactly as the orgasm is a part of the joy of Shiva and Shakti, exactly in the same way the joy of the Easter day is the joy of Lord. And therefore, he says, let them rejoicing enter into the joys of their Lord. Like, try 
to be blissful, try to see a state of beatitude, exactly as people do on the Pentecost day, which is 50 days, I'm sorry, uh, 50 days later, after the Easter, when Peter and the other 11 apostles, they were put in Samadhi, and they were like drunk, and they were joyful. And this is where you have in various cities the Pentecost day, which was celebrated by carnivals, that people went out on the streets and dancing and getting drunk and rejoicing. Like this is the day when God gives joy, and joy is legitimate, is almost required. Are they any weary from the Lent, from fasting? Being in the spring, there were no supermarkets and hypermarkets in those days, and the food was very scarce in the winter and very poor. And you got yourself in March or April, there was almost nothing. People, if they were lucky at this time of the year, they had some really early herbs coming up, like stinging nettles and stuff like this. And then people were making a broth of this, and this was the spring soup. But at this time, there were not yet carrots, potatoes, parsley, and other things for people to eat. So people were lacking vitamins. People were lacking, people had the shitty winter food in those days. And, And on top of it, they were going vegan. They are going vegan for 40 days. And that's why he says, are there any weary from the Lent? Like you're getting weary from the Lent. It was like the last blow before spring and life coming back. Let them now receive their due reward. If anyone has toiled from the first hour, this is a long, long paragraph. He put it, that's his inspiration. I will not fight with John Chrysostomus on this. It makes an allusion to another parable of Christ where there were people who came to work for a master, that means to do karma yoga for God, and some of them came at the first hour, which means 7 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock after sunrise, the first one hour after sunrise is the first hour of the day in the Jewish old traditional timekeeping, and some people came in the last hour, in the 11th hour. The 11th hour is a little bit before sunset. And funnily enough, God is taking all of them to the kingdom of heaven. And some say, I work the whole day and I get the same reward as the one who came just one hour before closer. And Jesus was telling them, stop being fucking jealous imbeciles. Yes, God is giving equally to the last as to the first. Yeah, And stop being jealous about that. Be, be happy that God has such an infinite generosity that he gives to everybody. And be happy. Don't complain that you work from the... You complain, then stop working and go in the outer darkness and stay in hell if you don't like it. You know, if you are ready to be jealous that somebody is getting paid for less work as much as you got paid. Like, are you nuts? No? Are you complaining that other people receive the love of God also and that the love of God is equal for everybody? What kind of egoistic bastard you can be? That's the parable which comes from Jesus. And it's about people who worked from the first hour. Or If anyone has toiled from the first hour, here he refers symbolically to the Lent. Like you have gone in the Lent seven weeks ago and you have toiled from the first hour. 
Let him receive his reward today. If anyone has come at the third hour, that means 75, after 25% of the time has passed. And with thanksgiving, thanksgiving, let him join the feast. If anyone has arrived at the sixth hour, that's midday, like a little halfway through the land, let him have no fear, for he shall suffer no loss. If anyone has tarried until the ninth hour, let him draw near without hesitation. If anyone has arrived even at the eleventh hour, let him not fear on account of his delay. Like nobody should be afraid that I am unworthy. You have to take this thing out. For God, you are worthy. Just make the step. Step forward. So he says, let no one let him not fear on account of this delay. That's where the expression comes, by the way, that you are doing things in the 11th hour. The 12th hour is too late because the, the story has stopped. So 12th hour is too late. 11th hour is still good. You cannot heal a cancer in the day when you die of the cancer. But you can start healing a cancer one month before you start dying of cancer. Then something can still be done. And thus, this is the eleventh hour. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last even as the first. That's the mystery of the universal love. It's not a democracy. It's not a justice system. It is universal, unconditional love which gives to everyone. He gives rest to those that come at the eleventh hour, just as to those who have labored from the beginning. What does God give? What's the gift? What's the payment? He gives rest. In case you do not know, that's what you are laboring for. That's what you are asking from God, if you never realized. You are asking for rest. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shantihi. The peace, the rest, the soul wants to rest in nirvana, in ecstasy, in forever. Yes, it is good to come from time to time and do karma yoga and exhaust yourself in the service of the Lord. But in the end of the day, there is rest. What does God give you? Not money. He gives you rest. Rest to your soul. Jesus says, I came to bring peace, but my peace is not what normal people call peace. My peace is this shanti, this rest, this peace of the soul, which was experienced by all the great mystics. So he gives rest to those who come at the 11th hour, just as to those who have labored from the beginning. Like, don't try to ask God to be democratic according to your twisted ideas. Let God show you what cosmic love is. He has mercy on the last and cares for the first. To one, he is gracious because he worked only the last hour, so there's a lot of grace there. And to the other, he gives lovingly. Anyway, you cannot compensate and you'll say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you a million times. So, It doesn't matter really. He both praises the intention, very important, 
He praises the intention because he wants who starts his effort in the 11th hour. It's more like he has the intention. He didn't really get to work hard to dirty his hands hard. So God is more praising your intention because you had the good intention and you manifested it right in the last minute and honors the deed or the effort. Yes, some people really made effort, making efforts for lifetimes over life. Try to think about the Dalai Lamas. How many lifetimes did they make effort after effort after effort after effort for the people around them? Many. More than 10 lifetimes, 14 lifetimes for the Dalai Lamas, 17 lifetimes for the Karmapas, and so on. No, it's like these are people who are working from the first hour or from early hours. There would be some, try to think about the Jewish prophets, Elijah and Zachariah and so on. Where are, didn't they do efforts? Aren't they still doing efforts? Those people were doing efforts 3,000 years ago. No, so it's like they have worked much more than you and I in case we haven't been there also and we aren't coming from those times and from those lineages. And that's why it's, uh, it's not to be judged quantitatively. It's something which is a leap in quality. Enter all of you, therefore, it's a very active message, enter all of you into the joy of the Lord, which is again, it's a subtle invitation, enjoy Ananda. Today is a day of bliss. When Jesus was raised, he was raised in bliss. He was not dead and crucified anymore. He was shining in the full light of divinity. So enter into the joy of the Lord. First or last alike, receive your reward. Rich and poor together dance with joy. Dance with joy. It's physical. No, he simply says dance with joy. Consensuous ascetics and the lazy and negligent celebrate the day. People from monasteries and from hermitages as well as the people who dilly-dally, enjoy the day. This is a day to be enjoyed. If you say, oh, I'm sorry, I was not more diligent. Okay, next week, become more diligent. Right now, today, enjoy. Those that have fasted, who observe this Lenten period, and those that have not, rejoice today. So even if you didn't do the Lent, still rejoice. It's not a license not to do the land for a practicing Christian. But it says if for some mysterious reason you didn't do it, don't hesitate to come close to Jesus today. The table is abundantly laden. Feast royally, all of you. The calf is fattened. Let no one go away hungry. This is again a reference to the parable of Jesus with the prodigal son, that the prodigal son comes back to his father after he wasted half of his money, and the father says, sacrifice the calf, sacrifice the lamb, I am happy that my son is back. And the other son says, yeah, but me, what about me? I've been always loyal to you and son. And the father, who is the cosmic father, says, again, you are an idiot, because you are jealous. All you can do is to be jealous. Think better. 
No, I'm loving you and my other son infinitely and unconditionally. Therefore, today, either way you are jealous or not, today is a day of celebration. Forget about your nasty thoughts. Today we have to celebrate because my prodigal son has returned. So the same here. He says the, the calf is fattened. Let no one go away hungry. Let all partake of this feast of faith. It's a feast of faith because you haven't seen Jesus resurrected. You choose to believe in it. Let all receive the bounty of God's goodness. These are blessings, abundant blessings. Let no one lament his poverty, for the universal kingdom of God has been revealed. Like even those who are materially poor, you have been shown by Jesus through his resurrection that there is a kingdom of God and it's yours if you want it, if you choose. And therefore, where is your poverty? There is only an apparent and temporary lack of some material means and this is not of the essence. Let no one mourn his transgressions. Like, oh, I did not do the land, I had sex, I did this. Let no one mourn his transgressions, for pardon has risen from the grave. Jesus has risen from the grave, and he is called pardon. Pardon for, so he is the personification of forgiveness. So this is not a day to say, oh my God, what a shit I have done. Not today. On that day, rejoice, because... Jesus has pardoned universally. It's a universal pardon. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. This is the final idea, and he continues with this, with death, because it's a victory against death. Of course, we all know that physical death has continued to exist, but they refer here to the spiritual death, to the death of the spirit, that you can die, but if you die like Seraphim of Sarov, or if you die like Francis of Assisi, then your death is not really a death. Then your death is an awakening to the other side, to the kingdom of heaven. So they simply say Jesus symbolically, but come, by coming back from the death, has shown to the whole mankind that death is nothing. That death is not the, the annihil annihilator, the point. It's not the darkness. It's not the nothingness. And in extremis, if God wants it, God doesn't need to want it because he can solve the problem directly in a spiritual awakening. But if God would choose so, every dead man and every dead woman could come back for 40 days and speak with people and be there. Of course, it doesn't serve any purpose. That's why it doesn't happen. But with Jesus, if Jesus did it, and perhaps a few others in history, then it is a proof that Jesus, as a Savior, has defeated death. He that was taken by death has annihilated it. So death swallowed Jesus and then exploded into small pieces because Jesus was too big. Death was put down. He descended into the underworld and took hell captive. Without the blessing of God, 
people go on Pitriyana, the Chandra, the sphere of the moon, and they go into a world which is dark and gray. And with the grace of God, people go on to Devayana, which is the solar sphere, where there is the light and the golden yellow, the bright light of spirituality. And Jesus accepted to go down into the underworld because he was killed as a criminal without religious rituals, without anything. And he went down and his humbleness was so total that he went down. But he went down exactly like a hook goes down in the sea and then a fish is biting on it. And when the hook is coming up, it's coming with the fish. So he took hell Prisoner, he says, he took hell captive. He embittered it and put it into turmoil when it tasted his flesh. It's like hell is like some leviathan, some whale, some mythological monster that tried to eat Jesus like hell eats all the dead. The earth eats the dead. And then when it bit on Jesus, it broke its teeth and its mouth became bitter because Jesus could not be eaten. Of course, he knew this, but this had to be proven in a divine way. The prophet Isaiah foretold this when he said, Hell was embittered when it encountered thee in the nether worlds. Jesus, it's much more to it than that he was crucified and mocked and he died. He even after death, he resisted for 30 hours, 45 hours, 48 hours. He resisted not doing anything. He didn't practice pova. He didn't go in his brahmarandra. He just surrendered. He said, maybe I'm a schizophrenic and I made up the whole thing. And then let me incur the consequences. If God agrees to what I have done, let God move. I will not do anything. God has to show me if I have done right or wrong. And God had to do it. And that's why even after death, Jesus remained for 24 hours until Saturday at sunset or 3 p.m. And another nine hours, so that would be like 30 something hours. Jesus just drifted down, 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 down to what the Greeks used to call Hades, the underworld. And the Hades was, it's like you put a bomb, an atomic bomb, in the underground. It was blown into pieces, because what was Jesus doing there? It was embittered, the hell was embittered, it's like you eat something very bitter and your mouth feels bad. It was embittered, for it was abolished, because hell was abolished in this way, the underworld. It was embittered, for it was mocked, like you mean nothing. You have no power, no more power. It was embittered, for it was purged. Purged means all the souls were taken out, clean slate. It was embittered, for it was destroyed. It was embittered, for it was bound in chains. Hell took a dead body and met God 
face to face. It's like Jesus was like a Trojan horse. Hell took a Trojan horse, and when it opened it, whoa, God was inside. God in the person of Jesus. Oops. And therefore, uh, here, he makes a lot of parables about how paradoxical was this death, this 33-hour long death of Jesus. It took dust, because we, from dust to dust, we are dust. It took dust like it thought it was a normal human being and it encountered heaven because Jesus was heaven, not dust. It took what it saw and it was overcome by what it could not see because hell cannot see the spiritual world, doesn't understand them. It's beyond its level of consciousness and that's why it was, it was like a judo. Suddenly, it was taken off balance. Oh, death. He mocks now the death because he is with Jesus. Oh, death. Where is thy sting? Like the Scorpio sting. Where is the sting? You know, death is killing everybody. Where is thy sting? Oh, hell. Where is thy victory? Now, everybody was afraid of death that hell takes you, Hades takes you, and you don't come back. Or if you come back, you don't remember you've been there and all that. Where is thy victory? Christ is risen. That's the salutation for Easter. After In the Easter day, Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons have fallen. Of course there still exist demons, but Christ gives you the power to make some yama with him and then the demons cannot come close because of the power of the Christ. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is set free. Because life is not just biological life, followed by death and unconsciousness. Life is followed by superconsciousness. Life is followed by the kingdom of heaven. Christ is risen, and no one dead remains buried, entombed in their tomb. For Christ having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those that slept. It's like they proclaim it, he proclaims it like a historical moment in the history of the Judaic Christian religion that because Jesus acquired this grace, then this is a special blessing. To him, to this Christ that he speaks, be glory and power forever and ever Amen. This is the text which is read and which has this connotation of spiritual victory. So prepare for spiritual victory tonight in the Catholic realm. It is the Last Supper. It's the Thursday, the great Thursday, where Jesus made his commitment that now he changes the covenant, that God gave him the power to change the covenant. God had made a covenant with Abraham and said, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to whatever, you have to circumcise the boys, the young boys. You have to. Then God made an improved covenant with Moses. 
when he gave him the Ten Commandments and said everybody should obey the Ten Commandments and this and that and all the Mosaic law. And then Jesus says, I am the next step. Now I give you a new covenant. And the new covenant is you don't need to sacrifice lambs. He himself as a kid sacrificed lambs when he was 12 years old and went to the temple. But he said, now it's not necessary. I am the lamb. This changes radically everything. And therefore you'll take bread and red wine. You'll make a special service, a special ritual. Those wine and bread will be transubstantialized and they will become my blood and my flesh. And by eating them in the ritual of communion, by eating them, it's like I come in your body. It's like what in agriculture is called a graft. That you have a wild apple tree and you take a little splint from a noble apple, a Jonathan apple or a golden something, and you take that splint and put it in the, you crack and you put it in the wild apple. And next year, the wild apple will produce golden yellow or Jonathan or whichever type of apples because of the grafting is a technique which is commonly used in farming and in agriculture. Jesus says, if you take the Christian communion, it's like a graft of me in your body. And therefore, you could get this gift every Sunday. You could get the gift of the communion. And that's why he offers a new covenant. No more need for lambs. No more need for the ritual of the scapegoat, which the Jews had. No more need for other kadosh rules. You play by my rules and every Sunday I can be grafted into your body and in this way you grow up, you grow up, you grow up spiritually together with me. That's at least the Christian line of practice for whoever chooses to be a practicing Christian. And, of course, the yogis of India and Tibet had a different line but they cannot ignore the grace of Jesus the gift of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. And even though Paramahamsa Yogananda, he did not become a practicing Christian going to the church every Sunday and taking the communion, he said, yes, but I'm doing meditation. I'm doing samyama. I use mantras. I do hatha yoga, kriya yoga, kundalini yoga, whatever I do. And therefore, I get a communion directly from God through other channels. But it doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge Jesus as well, although I'm not born in a place where I was following his path automatically. And thus, uh, the ideas are prepare for Easter, meditate, purify. Today is the Last Supper day in the Catholic Church the day where Jesus set the new covenant. Tomorrow is the Long Friday, the day where Jesus was arrested, tonight at midnight or so. And then he was judged, beaten, mocked, tortured, rejudged, and eventually condemned to death, put on a cross. And after a relatively short time, he passed away on the cross somewhere in the afternoon, so that they could take him away from the cross 
and bury him before sunset, because tomorrow at sunset, for the Jewish people, there starts the Sabbath day, and they could not do those things. So, um, then Saturday is the waiting day, when Jesus was drifting down in the limbos, in the bardos, and then at midnight is the resurrection. At 12 o'clock on Sunday, we celebrate the greatness of this event. We will do the same thing for the Orthodox people tomorrow. A Sunday is the Palm Sunday. The Sunday before is the entrance of Jesus to Jerusalem. And then next Thursday is the Last Supper. Next Friday, next week Friday, is the Long Friday. The Saturday is the Holy Light Ceremony, where the announcement of the resurrection is coming under the form of a miracle of light. If you don't remember what I'm talking about, go and watch the video on YouTube. And finally, next Sunday is the Orthodox Easter. Then, the Shambhala Easter one, one week later with a different dimension, having a different spiritual dimension. It's still a day of gratitude for Jesus. Even the great masters from Shambhala are grateful that Jesus came to this planet and did his sacrifice. And that is the whole point there. So we have a rich spiritual program. Be prepared spiritually and I will see you along these events in the coming days. Don't forget, we rejoice. People say, yeah, but you rejoice on this Sunday and then you rejoice on the next Sunday. Lucky us, we are open-minded. We celebrate Easter two times or even three times. So for us, Jesus gets resurrected every Sunday which is very beautiful. So, let's celebrate that. Thank you all for joining tonight. I hope it helps you prepare for the fiery Easter days which come. And with this, we are done for tonight.